Um, welcome to everybody. This morning we're talking about uh, discipleship, discipleship in relation to the church, our work as disciples with the church, our, um, our relationship as disciples with the church. And it's a huge topic and some of you are, are aware, um, painfully aware perhaps, I can sometimes overanalyze and so we go, we go a bit long. I want to try and control myself with some cameos this morning. Um, it's, a, it's an important theme though and, and I hope that uh, by the end of our half hour together this morning we will be informed, yes, but I hope especially challenged. We begin, of course, the necessary place to begin is the definition. What do we mean by disciple? And the sort of synonyms you'll find, uh, given by the lexicons, uh, things like a learner or a pupil or a follower. I like the term apprentice because in our modern understanding, I think apprentice comes closest to capturing the sense of the biblical meaning or the biblical concept of disciple because it's more than just following. It's more than just learning from we see a lot of that and we experience a lot of that in, 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 in educational context, including here in, in church. But to be a disciple in the sense of being a disciple of Christ is to be an apprentice of the master. And an apprentice ideally seeks in time to be learning, yes, but learning with a view to becoming like the master, to becoming a, a, a master, if you will, themselves, so that then they can perpetuate that cycle. The, the disciple becomes the master who can gather disciples who will be trained up to become masters themselves, etc. And we'll notice that this is really the, the heart of the character of what we know of as the, the Great Commission, as Matthew records it. So a learner, a pupil, a follower or an apprentice. And I want to bring to your attention three key contexts, key contexts as I would consider them, in relation to this idea, biblical concept of discipleship. Matthew chapter 11, and and these are such well-known passages to us, I I know we'll recognise them straight away. Come to me, said Jesus, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So there is Jesus' personal invitation, if you will, to become his disciple. And he uses this image, that of a yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And you'll notice the image there of the two oxen that have joined together by uh, a a yoke, they're yoked together. And this is quite a deliberate metaphor or illustration, I'm persuaded, that Jesus uses here. And probably a a much more familiar picture to Jesus' audience some 2,000 years ago than it might be to us. So I just want to quickly explain it, lest we miss the point. My understanding is that the custom was that in order to train up a young oxen, the disciple, if you will. They would yoke that young oxen to a a mature, older and typically larger and stronger oxen in order to be trained up to become like the the master ox, if you will. 
And so in this idea, if you if you imagine what would happen initially, the young ox sort of pulling and pulling it, not, not knowing the ropes as it were, but the yoke keeps it tied to the older ox, the stronger ox. And in time, after a process of pulling and shoving, the younger ox gets the ropes, gets the hang of it, where in time it can, it can offer not resistance but still follows along almost automatically. And again, in time, that young ox, once suitably trained and gaining, gaining experience, will become, lo and behold, the mature older ox as it grows. And so in time, a new oxen will be yoked to him or her. This is the image that Jesus presents of discipleship. And, and I want to just, in quickly passing, make this one observation. How clear is our understanding of our relationship with Christ as one yoked to Christ? Sometimes the road of discipleship is difficult, challenging. And sometimes, I guess, we would feel that, you know what, this is really hard and I'd rather be doing something else, I'd rather be somewhere else. But if we've made that commitment to yoke ourselves to Jesus, even during those times, though we might want to pull somewhat away, we will find ourselves held in check. And here is the beauty of it. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more natural it's going to become for us, the easier it's going to become for us. And the more and more we're going to look like Jesus No less challenging is this statement, again, from Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Again, the radical nature of this decision that might be made in becoming a disciple of Christ. Nothing less, says Jesus, than dying to oneself. Take up your cross, and he's not just talking about you know burden bearing. I guess that would be included, but that's really not what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus talks about taking up a cross, and remember Jesus says this in Matthew 16, this is the time when he announces the disciples that we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. The Son of Man is going to be killed, crucified. We understand, as Jesus understood, that a cross, to take up one's cross, is to die. And what Jesus is saying, no less than, to be his disciple, we have to be willing to die to ourselves in order to live for him. But here's the paradox. Jesus has promised, if you will do that, if you will die to self to become my disciple, to become yoked to me, guess what? You're going to be blessed with life. But you've got to die, be willing to die in order to live. Again, I'm not going to sing it, but you know what I'm thinking. Paul's words, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And finally, 
and it would really be remiss of me not to highlight this point. John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, by your love for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And of course that that concept of loving one another is rich and full in its meaning. I could wish we had an extra half hour just to explore that further together this morning, but let me let suffice to say this. Where we make the profession to be a disciple of Christ, if we are not motivated by and manifesting love, well, we're kidding ourselves. At the very least, we're either misguided and misunderstanding what it is to be a disciple of Christ or we're in some sort of denial. This is the key characteristic of the people of God, that they love one another. No shortcuts on that. Whatever, whatever agreement there might be about what we do or what we believe, and all of that's important, but it all becomes a failure discipleship-wise, if it's not built upon and contained within love, love of God and love of one another. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28, the classic, the classic text, I guess, when it comes to the question of being and making disciples. We know it, of course, as the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples learners, pupils, followers, apprentices of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And the colour coding there is quite deliberate, hopefully to to impress upon you to help uh, uh, understand the flow uh, as Jesus describes the process here. Make disciples, and if we, if we look at a parallel context like Mark chapter 16, for example, Mark is very explicit in connecting that process of making disciples of all the nations, all the peoples in the world, go and preach the gospel to all creation. We've got here the command to go forward and preach the gospel, and in the preaching of the gospel, we draw to Jesus' followers. Those followers should be baptised into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the process of discipleship continues. The process of following, the process of learning continues, you'll notice. As apprentices, you've got the beginning point, you've got the 101 subjects, the introductory courses, but then you move on. Ideally, you'll be doing 301, 401, the advanced stuff, as it were all built upon and contained within love, remember. Teach them to obey King Jesus. And it's very interesting, instructive, I think. Skip forward about ten days. This is the Great Commission given at the occasion of Jesus' ascension as he returns after some 40 days, Luke tells us, he appeared to the the disciples, uh, uh, proving that he was indeed resurrected from the dead. 
After about 40 days, he, he returns to the Father and these are his departing instructions to the disciples. So about 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, Luke tells us how the disciples understood and interpreted and applied this great commission that Jesus had given them. Therefore, let all the house of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Here is the conclusion, Peter's conclusion, to the preaching of the gospel. Israel, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead and we're here as witnesses and the the Spirit himself is witness to these things. Therefore, therefore, he is Christ, he is Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, remember Peter is working to a script here, the Great Commission, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of the Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. We read on in Acts, Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit really. We just read of the beginning when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. Now the Holy Spirit continues to direct the church. And you'll notice we've got a movement that Luke traces throughout the book of Acts. Uh, It's almost like a geographical, yes, ethnic, but also levels of discipleship. You see, he focuses now upon, in Acts chapter 8, for example, the first Samaritans become followers. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 28 through 40, a proselyte eunuch becomes a disciple. Acts chapter 9, a Jewish persecutor, a notorious, fearful, or fearsome, persecutor of the church, Saul, becomes a disciple. And then a significant turning point in Acts chapter 10, we're advised how the first Gentiles become disciples of Christ. And so this sets up really for the rest of the narrative, the rest of the flow of the book of Acts, precipitating Antioch's outreach to the Gentiles and Paul's missionary journeys. We pick up a little bit later, Acts 19 now, Paul, in his, in his journeys, arrives in Ephesus. While Apollos was at Corinth, we're told, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And I want you to notice carefully, uh, this may not be earth-shattering to you, it may not be new to you. It was to me uh, until probably, I guess, a decade ago. But in the context of 30-odd years of, as a Christian, that's, that's relatively late in the piece, isn't it? Again, I, I, I've reminded you before, I'm a bit slow sometimes, but I finally got it. A disciple is a learner. Not necessarily one who is born again. Not one who necessarily has been baptised into Christ. And that was a very important insight for me. 
While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Now let's pause there for a moment. I haven't read the text earlier at the end of chapter 18, but here we were introduced to three key characters, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. And Apollos arrives in Ephesus and he's described as somebody who's mighty in the scriptures. Apparently his knowledge and his eloquence in communicating the gospel, in teaching that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the son of the living God, as was indicated in the Old Testament scriptures. But there was just one shortfall in his understanding and therefore in his preaching. He only knew the baptism of John, we're told. He was faulty in his understanding, in his baptismal theology, of all things. But Priscilla and Aquila is a time. It's quite exciting when we see, again, this issue of love among disciples, even when we're dealing with disciples who, who have very different theologies. Priscilla and Aquila, we're told, took him aside and taught him the way of the Lord more fully. Taught him the way of the Lord more accurately. They respected him as a disciple, as a follower, but they understood that the nature of discipleship is we're growing. It's a process and we're growing into. And in recognising that, there wasn't any knee-jerk rejection as, as he could have done. false teacher! They didn't do that. They didn't ignore it as if it didn't matter, but they dealt with it in a respectful, loving way, speaking the truth in love, as it ought to be among disciples of Jesus Christ, wherever we are in that that process. And, you know, I think there's an interesting insight into Paul here, because after he's straightened out, if you will, by Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos moves on to Corinth. And we know from Paul's correspondence with the church at Corinth, Apollos became very influential there to the point where some were saying, I'm of Apollos, just as some were saying, I'm of Peter and I'm of Paul. Very influential servant in the church. Now, after Apollos has moved on from Ephesus, Paul arrives soon thereafter And I reckon I'd be safe in saying the first thing he's going to do is to look up his friends, Priscilla and Aquila, his co-workers in the gospel. Shared a deep relationship with them, even to the point of sharing a common trade, tent making together. These were deep friends in Christ. So I feel confident saying first thing I reckon he did when he hit town in Ephesus, he went and saw Priscilla and Aquila. And I want to suggest you the first thing that Priscilla and Aquila are going to tell him after they hug and kiss and whatnot. You won't believe this, Paul. There was this guy here called Apollos and he was preaching and he was telling the people to turn to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But you can't believe it. He only knew the, he, he was preaching the baptism of John, not baptism into Christ. Not baptism as in the Great Commission baptising them, you'll remember, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And notice the Trinitarian formula there, which is very significant. That's what's distinctive about Christian 
baptism as opposed to any other form of baptism, including the baptism of John. You won't believe it, Paul, but, but he, he, was, he, he was teaching the baptism of, of John. But we, we told him the way of the Lord more. Now he's moved on and, and, and he's preaching the full gospel, if you will. And the next thing we're told, Paul encounters these disciples, 12 of them in fact, in Ephesus. And how does it go? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What a strange question. What a strange question. Well, it's not strange at all. In fact, I think it demonstrates a great deal of insight on the part of Paul, a great deal of savvy on the part of Paul. Paul's locked away in the back of his mind. You know, there are some here that have been preached to and they've become disciples, they've become followers of Jesus based upon the preaching of Apollos but Apollos has left a few loose ends that need to be tidied up. And so when Paul comes across some disciples in Ephesus, he had good reason to ask them about their understanding of the Spirit of God. Remember the distinctive of Christian baptism? Baptising them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You could not be baptised into Christ. You could not experience Christian baptism without knowing about the Holy Spirit but you could be baptised with John's baptism and have no idea that there is such a thing as a Holy Spirit, which is precisely how the conversation unfolds. And you'll notice verse 5 on hearing this in explaining, Paul explaining to them, well, you know, John served his purpose in his time and his baptism was legitimate in that time, but now that's been superseded because John's work pointed to the one who would come, Jesus Christ. And so the conclusion on hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I've got a note there. Again, it's, it's, I, I'm not, you know, don't let the Greek intimidate you, but it's important to recognise this parallel. Isotonoma is the phrase that's used there. It's identical to the phrase that Jesus used in the Great Commission, baptising them into the name of of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Isotonoma. And the point is this. Apparently, that was a well-known technical term in the world of commerce, in the marketplace, in the Greco-Roman world at this time. And anybody living then would immediately recognise, at least anybody that was used to trading at the markets, would immediately recognise the significance of that phrase. Because what it signified was the transaction that was made, let's say goods and, and, and money's paid for the goods. I want to purchase this off you and so I'll give you whatever the asking price is and I'll give the money and here's the transfer. I'll give you the payment and I receive the goods in return. Now apply that to being baptised into the name of, into the possession of, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so what we have here is a deliberate link back to the Great Commission where these disciples were taught the way of the Lord more perfectly. Discipleship is a process of growth. 
from seed, if you will, to fruition. We have the necessary beginning point for the seed to be planted, the hearing of the gospel. Then we've got the issue of responding to the gospel. And we know from Jesus' parable of the soils that there are many different ways and levels and degrees of responding to the gospel. Some are so cold-hearted, hard-hearted, the word just never penetrates, never goes anywhere. Others are quick to receive it, you'll remember. But then when reality hits, when the rubber hits the road, it becomes all a bit hard and so I, I let it go. Others, well, others say yes and, and to a point engage the process of discipleship. They take up that yoke to a degree but are never willing to let go of the world. And so in time, typically, the cares of the world, the weeds in Jesus' metaphor, starve out the impact, the growth that otherwise should be happening. But of course others, others, as Jesus described it, with good and honest hearts, the good soil. But notice even there, there's a difference of degree. Some yield crops 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. I want you to see this sense of process, this sense of continuity, this sense of flow that's, that's inherent in the idea of being a disciple of Christ. Then, of course, we've got that, that crossing of the line, if you will, as we've noted uh, previously, obeying the gospel, where we declare our allegiance expressed in repentance and baptism. Then we've got the process of maturing in the gospel, cross-shaped living, bearing fruit of the Spirit, And of course the goal of the gospel, redemption, redemption now in that we are redeemed as as, uh, 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 David was, was leading us through the Lord's Supper this morning, redeemed by the blood of Christ, purchased by the blood of Christ. And that's how we become a possession of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But the redemption that happens now, it defines our mission as disciples of Christ, joining with God as it were, as it's often correctly uh, expressed these days. We join with God in his work of redemption of all creation. And central to that is preaching the gospel and living the gospel. But all of this is lived in anticipation of the end times when the Lord returns the culmination of all things with the new heavens and the new earth. And to highlight again, uh, referring back to Acts 18, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained him the way of God more adequately, as Paul, we've noted, did soon afterwards for the 12 disciples at Ephesus. Just to remind us again, discipleship is a process. Discipleship is a process. Just one final observation about uh, discipleship before we make a couple of applications. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16 and I anticipate that this uh, context will become um, revisited in the next couple of weeks as we look at uh, the work of elders and the work of deacons for example. Suffice for our purposes right now to, uh, to recognise a few highlights here 
from a disciple's point of view. In Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the measure, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So just some highlights. Leaders in work of service. The objective is Christ-likeness. Every member is a minister. Um, when we talk about discipleship, we're not talking about fans. And I don't even feel comfortable, frankly, about the, the idea of follower. I think it's inadequate. I think apprentice is a much more meaningful sense. We're not a, we're not a fan or a follower as in a follower of a football team or something. We are players. That's what discipleship is. We are players. Remember, we are yoked to Christ. Daily, daily we're drawn into activity, the business of life as a disciple of Christ. And of course, ministry extends into every aspect of life. It's much bigger than just church work. And what a tragedy is if we let our, our minds settle with the idea that ministry is just about church work. Well, that's very convenient. I guess you've probably managed to reduce discipleship to about, I don't know, what, 3 4% perhaps, perhaps. Of your life? It's 100% of our life. There is not an aspect, there is not an area of life for the Christian that is not impacted by our relationship with God through Christ. Our discipleship is expressed through any number of relationships, any number of circumstances in life. Between spouses, between parents and children, between brethren, between workers in the workplace, schoolmates in school, you name it, you name it, any and every context of life in which we might engage, Jesus ought to be there. Our discipleship to Christ ought to be underlining and informing all of those, all of those areas of our life. I do want to share this with you. Um, I reckon I've got about two minutes left, so that's going to be a bit ambitious. The dilemma of restoration within the broader context of Christianity. I want to just spend five minutes on this because I think it's really important for us. And I think it only makes sense or best makes sense in connection with this idea that I hope I've established that discipleship is a, is a process. There is a tension for us as a people, restorationists, that is simply those who, who understand that the church established through Jesus' apostles, those whom he specifically selected and trained for this purpose, those who were, according to the promise of Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit. They established a church. It's teaching, 
its ethos, its attitudes, its practices, and that the restorationist understands that that was God's intention and therefore we need to be making it our business to seek to understand and to take and transfer that model from the first century and apply it here in the 21st century. But that creates tension. On the one hand, we seek ecclesia, which is a fancy way of saying church unity. Because there's a whole bunch of disciples out there who don't share that understanding or that commitment to New Testament Christianity. But they are disciples nonetheless, and I hope that doesn't sort of discomfort you after what's gone before the last 20 minutes or so. Some of them are like an Apollos before he knew the full truth. And so you've got people in their understanding, their consistency on all all sort of um, uh, places along a spectrum, if you will. And historically, restorationists, and I mean anybody through the centuries, not just the so-called Stone-Campbell movement, throughout church history, the call to be apostolic, the call to be back, coming back to the Bible, it's not novel, it wasn't new 200 years ago. Wherever that, wherever that sentiment has been expressed, it's been expressed as a means of church unity. We can all come together, all of us disciples, surely we can agree upon what the Bible says and leave off our opinions and our traditions and etc. etc. Just be satisfied in terms of terms of fellowship. Be satisfied with what Scripture does teach. But then again, the appeal to restore, particularly the forms, and I've got illustrated there the Lord's Supper, weekly communion, which I think was the apostolic practice. Uh, Baptism, believer's baptism, by immersion for the forgiveness of sins. To seek to uphold those in a denominational world can be controversial and can be seen to be divisive. So there's that, there's that tension there. And I want to just explain things this way. The body of Christ, I'm, I'm looking funny because that circle's kind of got a bit wobbly, hasn't it? Very strange, strange, stranger things. Um, body of Christ. The Holy Apostolic Catholic Church. Back in the first couple of centuries, that was pretty much the way the church was seen and was, was expressed and, and understood. You'll notice that it's not just a pure um, mono colour, it's, it's, a, it's a motley colour. And that's quite deliberate on my part because the church always was motley. There were differences in the early church, even, even under the teaching of the apostles. You've only got to read Paul's letters and to recognise that there were, there were uh, differences even to the point of heretical groups in the first century. That's nothing, that's nothing new. Nothing new. But despite that diversity, it was understood that we are one body. 
built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Catholic there means universal. It has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church as a, as a name. It's speaking of the universal church. Then we had the Catholic Church with Constantine. And Constantine, I'm sure with good motive, good intention, radically and it seems forever changed the character of the church. And Constantine, as a Roman emperor, recognised the importance of religion, the importance of Christianity in particular, in terms of the well-being of the people. See, the Romans were always a very religious people. Ironically, the Christians were persecuted by Rome because, because of the Christians' refusal to, to worship all of the gods. They were called atheists and they were, they were seen as a threat to Rome. Treason. Just before Constantine, you had a period of a dozen years of, of atrocious persecution, horrendous persecution of the church. Precisely because they were seen as a threat to Rome because they refused to worship the gods, including Caesar. They had the nerve to say there is one God and we'll bow to him alone. And ironically, the same, the same perspective, the recognition of the importance for Rome that the gods are pleased shifted the focus from persecution to exalting the church. It was under the influence of Constantine that you had the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, because Constantine said, this will not do. We can't be divided on our understanding in this context of the nature of Christ. And so we've got to get together all of the leaders, all of the bishops, and we've got to sort this out once and once and for all because disunity means that God is displeased. And if God is displeased, then he won't bless Rome. And that becomes a threat to the system and that won't be tolerated by Caesar. Interesting. Interesting. But it changed the character of the church. The church went from a marginalised never powerful, never significant in any political sense of the word, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes persecuted, sometimes violently, violently so. But now it's become the preferred religion. And if you want to get on in Rome, you've got to say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm on board with this. And you can see how that would radically change the church. You'll notice the oval there, I've got overlap with the body of Christ. But I've also got an area outside of Christ to highlight this phenomenon, the righteous remnant, which is a theme that that predominates in the prophets in the Old Testament and continues, I would suggest, right down through to the present day. The people of God have always been a minority. In Old Testament times, well, how did Paul put it in Romans? Not all Israel, 
are Israel. Not all of the nation of Israel are the people of God. The Great Schism, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Roman Catholic Church separated in 1053. The Protestant Reformation beginning in 1517 and out of that has flowed a plethora of religious groups, the Lutheran and Anglican churches and and all of the groups that have sort of uh, flowed from that, uh, the Puritans, the the Methodists, etc., etc., the Presbyterian churches, the Baptist churches and it's become quite a complex picture. And in the midst of this, you've got the impulse of restoration. Why can't we just be like the church was back then? Simple. Simple. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you had a gospel rally, a community Decide the churches in a community decide to get together, and you've got um, Presbyterian, uh, Methodist, even a Catholic church there. And they agree that we will just teach what the Bible teaches. And so the nature of, of the preaching was, was little more than just citing scripture. But they recognise that that, that 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 has to be all right. <laughs> the Christian scriptures, it has to be all right. We, we have to agree to that. And so a week is spent in the preaching of the gospel. And at the end of that week, we divvy up the people. And so we have the Presbyterian minister, the Catholic priest and and everyone in between lined up and the people are invited to align with the church of their choice. But then a small group, a minority but a small group, say, well, wait a minute, we don't want to align with any of these. We've heard, we've heard the gospel preached and we've obeyed the gospel. Doesn't that make us a church without adding on to become whatever it takes to be identified as a Presbyterian or, or, or a Roman Catholic or, or, or whatever? That's the question that the restorationist asks. Can we do that? Can't we just do that? 